Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers podcast. I have a guest today, Louise Story, and she has a great name for somebody who spent her career in the media content and news business. She has played major executive roles at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a number of other prestigious publications as well. And she's really seen a lot of what's happened in the development of the intersection of digital media and news in particular over the last period of time. And I'm really excited to dig in with Louise on, I'm sure, so much that she's learned over the last number of years working in this industry in this digital world that's changed so much. So Louise, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. And is there anything you'd like to add to my introduction of you? No, I'm excited to be here and to dig in, Howard. I think we should start with the Wall Street Journal where you've been most recently, because of course, they've been such a leader, or at least were an early leader in creating a paywall and figuring out in a world where there's been such a decline in newspaper print subscriptions. It's of course, critical for news organizations to figure out how to make it in the digital world. So maybe tell us a little bit about the history of the Wall Street Journal and digital before you arrived and, and the inflection point that you arrived at. Yes, the Wall Street Journal was really early for a media company recognizing that to have quality news and information online, you would need a paid reader base. You know the expression, information wants to be free. A lot of media companies for a very long time made their websites entirely free. And while that's awfully nice for readers, the problem is with what's happening with the decline of print and the changes in the advertising industry, it's just not a sustainable business model for most content companies to have it be entirely free. And so the journal was early and introduced, it was really the first big news brand to introduce a paywall. The paywall was very successful and still is at the journal and creating a subscriber base. But when I arrived in 2018, and it had been a long time since the paywall had been introduced. And because it had been so successful, early success can make it such that you don't always focus on other things that other companies do. So for example, a really big part over time of growing your subscriber base is having a large top of funnel. You know, a large audience of people who aren't so close to you, don't come so much, but they come, you know, new audiences, new visitors, new people who can get to know you and consider spending more time with you. Having an early success with a paywall and a steady subscriber base can cause companies not to pay as much attention to their top of funnel. And so one of the things that I and others there focused on immediately, especially starting you know, around 2018 when I got there, was how to build the top of funnel. That can represent a major strategy change for an institution because if you're really doing that, there's changes you need to make in your product and technology. Even things like, for example, what is your page load speed on your website set for? Is it set primarily to load very quickly for people who come all the time at the expense of people who only occasionally come? So we actually were, were changing that in order to make the experience really good for new visitors. And that's something that had not been focused on before to um, what stories are you writing, to how are you marketing and addressing the people who land on your sites and your promotional in-house marketing spots. So it's really the kind of mindset change that has to cross 
all areas of your brand and of your company. And we did a lot on that. So anyways, we'll talk more about that, but that, that's kind of the, the headline. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I would imagine, you know, the Wall Street Journal, of course, went into this world of having subscription news online with a huge asset, which is they were you know, obviously one of the very top brands, one of the brands that had content that people seem to be willing to pay for. I think a lot of other news organizations may struggle because they may not be quite so unique, quite so differentiated in terms of the kind of news content that they're creating. As you look, though, you said something very interesting about the top of the funnel and how it pertains to content. I know in a lot of news organizations, there's that strong sense of firewall between marketing and editorial and a concern about driving uh, any particular type of content to drive subscriptions, et cetera. How did you find that there? Were you able to easily encourage change to editorial to drive greater top of funnel or was that, was that a cultural struggle? So I was in the fortunate position of being one of the most senior news editors and was the chief news strategist. Um, running all of the coverage strategy in all the different topics the journal covers from finance to sports to international to politics, as well as being the chief product and technology officer, which meant I was focusing on the product and technology aspects of everything, including the commercial goals and marketing. And so because of that very unusual position in news, it's unusual because media companies are traditionally very siloed. So it was an unusual position, but because of that position, I was able to bring that strategy, that full brand product strategy together with the content strategy. And I think that's really how it should be done because after all, in a content company, the product is the content. It's the content bundled in the content experience. And a lot of media companies struggle when they have different people not talking to each other, driving content, and then driving the rest of the product experience. One thing, Howard, you may have seen in the news is actually just recently, the Washington Post sort of copied the structure and the job and so on that I was in at the journal and created the same job with someone um, at a high level overseeing content and as a senior editor and at a high level being the chief product officer. And so I, I think that's a, that's a good path forward for media companies. And so because of that, I was able to work with other senior editors and help think about different types of contents, different formats, different topics, different frequencies. And you really have to do that to change. And, you know, I've been in journalism over 20 years. I spent a lot of my time as an investigative reporter. I've uncovered three major international fraud cases, including the biggest kleptocracy case in history. Wow. I note, if you're curious about that, you can watch my film, The Kleptocrats, on Amazon and Apple. It's, it's a great story. But anyways... I care a lot about quality journalism and uncovering new things. And so to me, though, it's not, there's nothing in contradiction in thinking about reaching audiences with your journalism and doing great journalism because impactful journalism should resonate with people. It should reach people. Most of the reporters I know, we went in this business to be impactful with our work, which means, again, being accessible and resonating with people. So sometimes in the industry, people see, data or marketing or something as being contradictory, but if you use it in a smart way, if you respect the fact that original reporting is so important and data can't dictate that, they can live together very productively. Absolutely. And did it cause you, I know like, for example, at the New York Times, I know that some of their big digital growth came from things like crossword apps, recipe apps, things which really weren't something that they'd never done before. Of course, the New York Times Crossword Pulse is quite famous, but the expansion of certain content areas that were previously fairly minor for them because they saw a market there. 
Was it at that degree at the journal or was it really more just a, a nuance to the kind of reporting you're already doing? Well, for example, at the journal, one of the teams I led introduced a big push into personal finance and career guides. Mm-hmm. You know, very useful, straightforward, somewhat evergreen content to help people make decisions around those matters. And that um, has been very successful and the journal has expanded that into a whole coverage area, that approach of not just a fleeting news story, something you write one day and it's, you know, people sometimes think like we're still putting newspapers out that go in the trash can, right? But when you're making digital content that lives on forever, thinking about the very content differently uh, helps. And so one of the things I led at the journal was overseeing a shift in how we approach that kind of guide-like content. And that's been content that's very successful with new visitors, brings people closer. And so we did that. One thing I just want to say, Howard, though, on the Times and other places with spin-out products like Crosswords and, you know, I was at the New York Times. I played a central role in the innovation report there, which was kind of the first step in the new digital blueprint and the digital plans, the New York Times back in uh, 2014. I don't view those things as news companies taking on new and other things they don't normally do. Actually, The news industry historically has provided a lot of information that's utility-based information. For example, where did people get their weather back before the internet? Where did people get, you know, a lot of, you know, just utility information. And in some ways, I think news companies, as the internet came up, news companies let go of this utility-type information. And a lot of companies we're calling tech companies now are providing that. But those are things news companies could provide and I think should think about whether or not those are things that they can use, provide regular engagement, habituating experiences to their audiences. As you sought to figure out what types of new content and some of the things you describe make perfect sense, they sound very on brand for the journal and your audience. And it's always great to have some evergreen content in a world where so much content is is fleeting. How did you figure out what would really work? Was this more of a intuition and then tested in the market? Was there customer research? What, what were you doing to figure out how to figure out what, what your hits would be, so to speak, with this broadened content? Well, you know, a lot of inputs go in. There is a lot of customer research. My team did a large report called the Content Review, which I can't go into total detail about, but it was a very ambitious report looking in a database way at what different things were working and why and how. You know, so there's database, user research, and then just testing. You know, I think one of the things I've seen at the media outlets I've been at is that it's not always traditional to test things in media companies because remember, errors are a big problem in journalism and reporting, right? Like if you get something wrong in a story, like that's bad and you you must correct it. So in some ways, that culture, that DNA, which is very important in terms of accurate information in a story, can spill over into a mentality in trying new things. Because in order to try new things, you have to embrace and want some of them not to work. A failure is good because you've now learned, oh, that's not the right thing. So we can find the right thing. But that's like not in the DNA of a newsroom where you don't want anything not to be right or work. And so that is something you have to get people comfortable with. But we really were, over the last three years, able to introduce a lot of different testing of things, look at how we measured them. One of the things I did as product and technology officer also was overhaul the way the engineering teams handled tagging of new things. So this is one thing I'm not sure how much you talk about this when you talk about marketing and and so on, but some companies 
you know, you always want to look at data and see what works. But if your engineering team doesn't feel responsible and invested and excited about that data, they won't engineer with it in mind. They won't tag for meeting of whole events. You know, they might just kick the log over out of the mobile app and say it's someone else's problem. So one of the things I did as chief technology officer was really work with the engineers to see how like they were part of the data. And part of how you can get engineers excited about the data, by the way, also is then share all the results back with them so they see, you know, include them in thinking about that, which makes them feel invested. So there were cultural things to do around experimentation and data collection, both in the um, news editor reporter side, as well as in engineering in different parts of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that so often. You take somebody who's been treated like someone who gets just given requirements to build. Right. And all of a sudden they have a seat at the table as essentially as a business person, not just a technician. And it's amazing. And that, by the way, I find that's true not only with engineers, but sometimes people from legal, from finance, people who previously were told to stay in their lane, given the opportunity to actually think through things holistically can often, first of all, as you say, be much more invested and also have great thoughts and ideas. It's, it's not restricted to people who are just, you know, product people per se. Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. Yes, I totally agree, Howard. And I actually think in some ways, this is a shift in management that's happening. It's somewhat generational, and I think it's really important for business leaders to think about this because not only, as you say, will it get people invested in, in doing the things the business needs, not only will it give better ideas, as you noted, but also it's increasingly expected by people in their 20s and 30s and early 40s that they will be treated as a partner at, at their company, that what their company stands for even in values is something they care about what their company's strategy is. They've got thoughts on, and, and they're good thoughts. And business executives who ignore that and don't understand that people at all levels feel like it's not just a job. They're, they're coming there. They're contributing. They should be included in talking about what the mission and strategy is. You'll lose talent too. So it, it's an important shift to pay attention to. Absolutely. And we see it so often, sometimes those people are your customer sensors. You know, if you have a call center that's taking subscriptions and you want to know, why do people cancel? What's, what are they balancing? What are they weighing? Well, is it worth the money? Ask those people. They talk to your customers all day long, and yet so often they're relegated to, oh, you know, they're just a call center. But they're the ones who spend all that time with the, with the readers, with the viewers, with the customers, or whatever a given industry calls, you know, shoppers, they're where the money comes from. Yes, being close to the craft, to the audience in whatever way you can in all the different disciplines of your company is important. Now, I want to get to the top of the funnel stuff, but before we do, I just want to ask one other sort of business question, which is, of course, in news, you typically still have this hybrid revenue model, subscription and advertiser. So how did the thinking about the advertiser factor into this? No doubt when they put the paywall in there in the first place, there was, must have been, I know that was before you were at Wall Street Journal, but you've been in this industry. That's always a, oh, geez, that's going to reduce impressions. So it potentially reduces our online advertising revenue. We want to make sure that's going to factor in. It's been so much easier for certain companies to monetize advertising like Facebook and Google when they have so much understanding of the customer. And yet the Wall Street Journal has been historically one of the most premium brands in terms of targeting a business audience. So I would imagine the CPMs there would be much higher than, say, at CNN or someplace like that where the audience is not so choice in terms of what advertisers are often looking for, higher net worth, et cetera. So I'm curious, as you progress forward in thinking about this, were you just laser focused on? 
top of funnel and, and moving into greater subscription revenue or how did advertising revenue factor in as well? Well, yeah, I mean, pretty much every media company cares a lot about advertising revenue and that's, you know, an important part of the business model still, even as that industry has changed and total spend has gone down in some cases, some places. So, well, first of all, top of funnel means more people and generally speaking, that can mean, you know, more ads are shown. So that's actually aligned with an advertising strategy. I will caveat that and say advertisers, you know, want a lot of views of their ads, but they do also sometimes want audiences that they know a bit about. The more you have people who are subscribers or who are perhaps registered users um, or come to you more, then you, it might be a smaller number of people, but advertisers do value um, knowing, okay, this is reaching you know, people who are all managerial positions and above, or this is, re you know, and, and for the very top of funnel people, you don't know anything practically about them. So advertisers like both, and there's different pricing for that. And as we pursued um, really with the top of funnel, it really then becomes a full funnel strategy because as soon as you're getting more people, you say, okay, so what are we doing to fatten the funnel, to have them more of them move down and stay there? And then what are we doing to convert? And then kind of the last piece, which was a big impactful piece and I think it really applies to companies all over the industry is looking at people who are subscribers but aren't that engaged and what are we doing about them and this is something um, the International Media Association, News and Media Association, they have a big report out recently that basically says that these light readers who are paying but don't come that much are the key of the future for all subscription-based content companies. And that's something very much I've been out talking about in the industry the last couple of years and done things on. That's a big shift too. So it's really the full, the full funnel and looking at what drives what. So when it comes to top of funnel, I mean, there's so many fascinating things here. Obviously you're in an industry where you can sell subscriptions direct, but there's also places where you can sell subscriptions through third parties like Amazon or Apple, not to mention the fact that, you know, news has such is so advantaged with the potential for social media to drive a lot of organic traffic. Although when you have a paywall, then you have some, some issues there in terms of whether people can actually see the content and, and all that. So I'd love to get your lay of the land in terms of what are you thinking about when you say you want to increase the top of funnel for a, a paywall-driven subscription news service like the Journal? News companies have waves that come along in terms of big news stories that people are interested in. These can be the election the peak of the coronavirus. There are certain times, some predictable, like elections you know, and some unpredictable, like the pandemic, where there's going to be extra big waves of newsreaders. And at that time, media companies that have big welcome gates and are set up to receive these waves will end up with more of them signing up for emails and sticking around, more of them registering, and more of them subscribing. So part of developing top of funnel is to set yourself up for success long before the wave. So you're ready as the wave comes in. That really does take a concerted effort. There's a lot of technology work to do for most platforms out there around SEO, and you have to stay on it because Google, for example, is changing how things work all the time. Um, so you have to stay on that. In a big news wave, Search is going to be a huge, huge input of traffic, and not just from Google News. Actually, the majority is from general Google searches, where the vast majority comes in. If you don't have, for example, your live coverage page 
laid out in a way that it's going to be scanned and picked up by Google, you know, every two minutes when it updates. Um, a common problem at media companies is those sometimes don't get scanned, but every few hours, you, you just you just miss the boat. So positioning yourself to be big, to be getting that wave is important. And it's not a given you're going to get it because when there's a big wave, there is some increase at every news brand and direct traffic or people will just put in www, you know, washpost.com or www.mytimes.com. But mostly in a big wave, they search for it or they're on social. And so if you are not set up in a big way to take advantage of it, like others are, and they'll just go to other, they'll just go to other places. Yeah, no, absolutely. By the way, Howard, one thing I'll mention on that too, it's not just the product and technology, but in terms of marketing, that's a big setup thing too. So for example, especially for planned news events, there's a lot of work that goes on at media companies when there's something coming up like an election it's not even always visible to the readers, but to be allowing more sampling, to be promoting certain stories that you see are things that are likely to convert someone to the same user over the course of the month, a few times, and then to land a promotion offer of a website to them, you know, right on election day or right, you know, so there's specific strategies like that. And they're hard to do when it's an unplanned news event. Although, for example, the pandemic went on a very long time. So then you can, you can develop strategies then on how you think about through marketing, helping people join you during these waves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I want to get into the, the fattening of the funnel part too, as you're starting to talk about, but I want to ask one question about the top of the funnel first. You've talked a lot about uh, organic forms of getting more people in the funnel. Was that the primary focus there, or how much do you think also about paid as a way of getting people into that funnel? Paid is very important, but it's mainly a Facebook thing, and it works well on Facebook. But remember also, any more you want to do on it, you have to pay more. So I've focused a lot with teams on effective organic strategies because, I mean, they're not completely free because you are paying in-house people to do things to do well organically but you're not literally spending marketing budget, you know, on a, on a tech platform to get the traffic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I will tell you there is some very good interaction you can have between organic and paid strategies. So that's one of the areas that a, a lot of media companies I think can improve on because again, there tends to be this wall. They're not always talking. And if you, you know, you don't need to break any ethical barriers, but if you can help the people on the paid side, see what's trending better from organic, and the people in the organic, you know, you can, there are ways that those two can work together in a good, in, in a good way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you started to talk a little bit about then once you've got people in the funnel, what are the things you're doing to figure out how to structure that experience? Maybe first you just want to get some sort of unpaid registration so that you can market to them. If I, if I intuited that correctly, but then can you talk a little bit about the steps that you follow that maybe some of the variations you've done and, and what you've learned about what works better and what doesn't work as well? The most important thing to do is to get people to sign up for something. And, you know, they can sign up for a newsletter, which is great because you're in their inbox. They could sign up if you have registration. And some companies make registration a big part of the strategy and some don't. But if you have registration, they could register. Or, you know, for example, you know, one great thing that the Wall Street Journal has is market alerts. Um, you know, you can share what stocks that you follow and get certain alerts around that. And I think, you know, every brand can think about what's on brand that can be something that's alerting. We had a big project we actually kicked up right as the um, pandemic hit where we wanted to make sure in real time we were reevaluating our roadmaps and looking at everything 
to hook people in more. We call it Project Boomerang. Like the idea is, you know, bring them back. Yeah, we we rolled out a lot of things actually around some of the like the market market updates um, that were that were impactful. Um, so you know, one trade off that a, a lot of companies have is, you know, in marketing, you've got the shot. They've landed. You you get to show them one thing. So if you're a subscription based company, there's a feeling like, okay, let's ask them to subscribe. And it can be difficult to hold back that intuition and instead say, hey, do you want to register? Or hey, do you want this newsletter? As I'm sure many of your listeners have, I've looked at a lot of data of the trade-off in terms of the short term, okay, you're getting fewer subscribers, but you're getting this registration, you're getting this newsletter. And it really does take executive management with a longer term point of view in terms of longer term growth of a company to invest in a very big, fat middle funnel of registered users, peoples on emails. But I think it's really worth it. And it's worth it for a few reasons. One, you know, they'll convert eventually a lot of them, not all. But two, people who are in those programs, when they convert, they churn less because they know you better. And that's really, really important because churn is very expensive. And, you know, if you can be having people subscribe who will know what they're getting into, who like it and are not so likely to churn, that's much less expensive than having to replace, you know, with new people. So that, you know, real sampling and kind of warming up the relationship that can happen through a very large middle funnel that you know in some way, even though they're not paying, is a great long-term strategy. But again, on a short-term basis, companies are often tempted not to really give it a push and and instead want to just say, hey, pay us. Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And intuitively, I, I always tend to want those things to be true, right? To want it to be true that let's build a relationship over time. Let's not just be super transactional. I have to confess, though, I've been at many clients where I've seen data presented that doesn't always support the strategy. Sometimes someone's able to show, you know what? Yeah, we do get business, but we also sometimes, I mean, you can, you can A-B test something and sometimes you discover, you know what? When you ask for the fast sale, you get more sales than over time. Although you've pointed out an important additional factor that maybe isn't always being looked at, which is what is the lifetime value of that customer and how are you impacting that through a longer romance? so to speak. So that's, that's a great insight. I do think, by the way, that, and I'm glad you mentioned lifetime value. That is a KPI that not enough media companies are using. A lot of media companies are using their KPIs pure conversions. And conversions are very important. But that, that, it really changes the equation when you look at the very sizable amount of churn that many places have. Well, you know, because you get addicted to what's great about digital, which is you get all these metrics and you can A-B test something. And then you're like, okay, a day later, like, so how did it go? You know, and it's great to have that immediate feedback and then be told, well, you know, the lifetime value impact of this campaign, we'll know that in a couple of years, you know, it could take quite a long time. So are there any leading indicators that you've seen? That's what I'm always looking for is, are there leading indicators of long lifetime value? Because by the time you know for sure that you've got that lifetime value, a lifetime's a long time, right? To wait to find out what the actual outcomes are. Anything you've seen that helps predict that? Yeah, this is so obvious. I'm embarrassed to even cite it as wisdom. So let me just own that it's very obvious. But the frequency with which a new 
subscriber is coming to your platforms is extremely predictive of whether they're going to stay or not. So, you know, um, and one of the teams I ran was the optimization team. So we would do those optimization of the offerings, but then looking again at this LTV and looking at, you can see in the first hundred days, are they coming a lot? You actually can get that LTV answer pretty quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. And then as you seeing those things, is that impacting how you reach out to them, what you do, kind of your tracking, kind of where they are and how warm they are in the relationship to determine when's the time to try to move to the next level and say, ask for the subscription? We've got these two milestones, right? We've got, okay, here's some free content. And then there's, okay, now I want you to subscribe, yep. right? And figuring out how much you have to give for free before it's, it's okay to say, I want your email or whatnot. And then there's the next milestone, which is, okay, now you've been subscribed to free content. You've given me your email at least or whatever, text or whatever it is. And now I want you to pay to get to the next level. And I'm just wondering, I would imagine that figuring out when the sweet spot is for that, when it's okay to escalate the relationship in a way that you're asking for something, figuring out the optimal moment is probably a key component. At least I've seen that. And I'm curious there, were you using indicators like numbers of times they return, articles, or things like that to try to figure out, or, or other things? I'm just curious, really overall, how, how are you finding that optimal moment when it's time to pop the question, so to speak? So when you see someone's like coming back a lot, that's usually in general when across the industry you ask them to pay. Some companies, it's just a, after a certain number of articles, right? After you've read that many articles, it's open. Everyone knows you hit that number of articles, you're going to be asked to pay. And some places, it's a model that the exact timing is not actually open and public, what it's going to be. But it's, I can tell you in general what those kind of models, it's going to be like when you're coming back a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time here. I could keep asking you questions for another hour. I want to make sure I've, I've gotten for our audience any other key ahas or insights that you've gotten out of your, your work at the journal or, or even before that you'd say as advice for anybody else that's looking to go down a similar path to figure out how to optimize. You could, it could be for any digital business, but obviously in media or in news, any other big insights that you've had that you'd want to pass on before we run out of time? Sure. I would love to just point out, we touched on a little bit, but looking very carefully at the metrics around your paying subscribers who are not coming very much, not the dormant ones, because like maybe they've just forgotten about you, but the ones who are coming maybe only a few days a month. I've looked at extensive data, and this is something now coming out across the industry, the MO report and so on, and it is very, very, very clear. That is the best path to follow in your content and product choices. And often inside companies, people will say, oh, but what about our most loyal subscribers, people who come all the time? We should do what they want. But here's the deal. They're not churning. And you can change a few things, and they're not going to churn. And you know what else? They actually are a little bit indiscriminate. They click open a lot of stuff. And when you look at what they spend a lot more time, it's often actually the stuff that the people who don't come that much look at. So, so that really focusing in and understanding that is the most predictive set of number and that's the audience segment that can point you in the right direction can be very impactful to retaining and converting subscribers. And, you know, you mentioned the dormant ones. And so it makes me, I have to ask a question here, which is, you know, a dirty little secret of most con continuity models is that you can make a lot of money on breakage. You know, people who sign up, just kind of forget, don't notice, don't, don't pay a lot of attention to the fact that they're being billed every month or every quarter or whatever it might be. And I've been in rooms sometimes where there's some concern about messaging people too much that they're going to go, oh yeah, that subscription, I meant to cancel that, you know? 
Do you ever worry about that? Do you ever worry about creating awareness amongst people who maybe have forgotten about you but are just keep paying? I mean, from a true hard-nosed business perspective, is that something that we should be thinking about? Or instead, should we be just be trying to maximize everybody's benefits and value from their, the money they pay and not worry about if that causes some people to be reminded that this is something they meant to cancel? I think this is more of a philosophical question and probably whatever people are doing will tie to like the philosophy of their CEO and owner in terms of how you interact with customers and how transparent you are. Because some people would say, well, don't worry about that. You're going to lose them. If they're not coming, just cancel it for them after a few months. That's just more fair. That's more right. And, you know, online cancellations is a big thing. We've looked at it because there's changing laws in places around California about making it easier to cancel online in different places. And I think people are just have to do some soul searching on that and then be consistent through their business. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Louise, thank you so much. Uh, I want to make sure we end with uh, a reasonable length here, even though there's so much more that we could talk about. So I really, really appreciate all these insights. This has been fantastic. And, and congratulations on all the success you've had, both at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. I want to mention, by the way, that you are now part of the hottest trend of all lately, which is the great resignation, having recently left uh, the Wall Street Journal. And I know you're working on a book and doing some other exciting things. So why don't you just tell us a little bit, as whatever you're allowed to say, or you know, if anything's top secret, of course, uh, let us know what you're doing now. And also, if people want to learn more about some of the cool things you're doing now, including your book, how they can learn more about it. Thanks, Howard. I'm really honored and excited to be backed by HarperCollins on a book about race and money in America. I'm working with a brilliant journalist named Ebony Reed. We're co-writing it. And we, in the meantime, put out a newsletter that's getting quite popular about race and money and things we're seeing and with original interviews each week as we're working on this book. So people could follow us. We just set up our Twitter so people could have an easy way to find us. It's just at race and money. So they just look for at race and money. They can follow us there. We're putting our newsletter up there every week and then they can follow along. And, you know, we, we've worked in all these spaces around content and product. We're looking at the history and how it affects what should be in stories, but also how it affects how you should think about DEI in companies and how it affects professional, you know, professionals, you know, the current applications that you should think about as you know, this history. Yeah. Very hot topic. I'm excited to, uh, I'll check it out for sure. And I'm excited to, do you know when the book's coming out yet? The published date is not set, but we've got a little time. We're currently reporting and talking with everyone from academics to celebrities to a lot of ordinary people trying to bring up their family's fortune. And um, so it will be a little time. So I hope people will follow us on the newsletter in the meantime. Yeah, well, that's good. So we have a way of getting quick updates. Must be an interesting shift going from putting out a daily newspaper to the cadence of writing a book, which of course is at the other end of the, of the spectrum in terms of uh, timeframes, I know from having been through it myself. Well, thank you so much, Louise, for joining us. It's been fantastic. Thanks to all of you for watching and listening the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Look forward to seeing you next time on the podcast. Till then, keep transforming. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.